I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. And while you're turning there, I need to make sure that you understand that the rapture has not occurred this morning. The high school students are uh, gone. They're up at Birch Bay. And for me, it's an incredibly weird thing to not have them there. It's always encouraging for me uh, to see uh, the young people uh, up front. I realize there's a few of you scattered around, but I'm kind of used to them being right there. I have nothing to look at this morning. So... Romans chapter 12. If then we want to be disciples of Christ, we should make it our aim to soak our minds in the sort of sensitivity and obedience to God that can tame and subdue every natural impulse contrary to his command. So said the great reformer John Calvin. How do we create a context? How do we create a a culture for effective disciple making here at Christ Fellowship? That's the question we're posing in the remaining weeks of this series that we have entitled, Follow Me, The Adventure of Discipleship. Last week, we looked at the first of three activities that will help to to solidify, that will help to to nurture or cultivate this, this environment of discipleship that we're after. And so last week, we, we began by looking at the pulpit. We gather together as the people of God on a weekly basis to, to hear the word of God, to receive the ordinances, and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the focus of the pulpit, and our focus here is upward, you will remember. Today I want to move from the pulpit to the table. Now, the table is where relationships are nurtured and cultivated. When we move from the the pulpit to the table, we will find that our focus moves from upward to inward. From upward to inward. And so the title of the message this morning is The Table, Disciples Moving Inward. We'll find this morning that this is where we transition from the large group on Sunday morning that gathers at the pulpit, to small groups or clusters of people that gather around the table. So there's no confusion. I'm not referring to the Lord's table. I'm referring to your dining room table. I'm referring to the round table at Starbucks. I'm referring to the the counter that you stand at and cultivate relationships with your friends. It's in this arena where personal questions are asked It is in this arena where we pray for one another. This is where we show love for one another. This is where we challenge one another. This is where healthy accountability takes place. Joe Thorne recently wrote, The environment of our smaller gatherings and friendships in the church is where we can fulfill God's call on our lives. I want to repeat that and have you really linger over these words, very wise words from Pastor Thorne. The environment of our smaller gatherings and friendships in the church is where we can fulfill God's call on our lives. He continues, the people of God must meet together in smaller numbers to carry out the will of God in each other's lives. I want to pose this question just by way of introduction. What is it that happens at the table? 
What is it exactly that takes place? Well, I want to have you turn your attention without turning in your Bibles to several scriptures that will uh, draw us to the table together. Romans chapter 15 verse 7 says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. This is the first thing that we see happening at the table. It is a simple welcome, but it is a profound welcome as we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. One of the practical applications here is this, and I, I think we're growing in this here at Christ Fellowship. In fact, I'm actually very encouraged about this right now, is our ability to welcome one another to the church family. I think we're doing well in this area that when guests come, by the way, I don't know if you knew this or not, some of you do, we do not refer to people who come to Christ Fellowship for the first time as visitors Many churches do, but there's something that we need to understand about visitors. Visitors come and visitors go. Visitors come and they leave, but guests, guests come and are welcomed and, and received with love and honor and respect. And so, respect. And so we, we bring guests to church. We invite guests and we welcome them as Christ has welcomed each of us. In Romans fifteen fourteen. We are told this to instruct one another. This is the second thing we see that happens at the table. As you gather around your, your table in your homes, as you gather around a, a round table at Starbucks, wherever it is that you cultivate these friendships, is there's instruction that takes place. I can tell you that some of the most powerful times of fellowship and instruction have happened at my dining room table in my family. I can tell you stories where in one instance, actually in many instances, people were struggling with a doctrinal issue. The, the, the most significant struggle I've seen throughout 25 years serving as a pastor has been this, the area of predestination and election. Where I have had people, Jareen and I have had people at our table in tears over this doctrine. So what happens is we instruct one another. And we open the word of God and we, we challenge one another and we instruct one another. First Corinthians chapter 12 verse 25, Paul says, have the same care for one another. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Hebrews 10.24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then, of course, in James chapter 5, it's not on the screen, but James says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, as you notice, as we look at several scriptures that have flashed before you on the screen, you see that there's a common thread, that there's a common theme that emerges at the table, and that is the idea of one another. That is the common th theme. That is the common thread. And so we see that at the table, we participate in community. At the table, we enjoy what the old-time saints used to call the communion of the saints. 
I would be one who would propose that we bring that back to life. The communion of the saints. This is where we gather in a more intimate setting, which, as I've already stated, usually takes place in in homes or parks or coffee shops or restaurants. Heidelberg Catechism, question number 55, says, What do you understand by the communion of the saints? Here's the answer. First, that believers... All and everyone as members of Christ have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. You see, the Bible calls each of us to this kind of interaction This level of intimacy and the greatest word in in all of the Bible that points to this kind of intimacy is the word fellowship. Fellowship. I can tell you that early in my Christian life, I, to be very honest with you, grew weary of the word fellowship. Because I believe many of you are like me where when you think fellowship, you think the good old church potluck. And certainly the title, the the word fellowship, does include something like a church potluck or a church get-together. But the term goes much deeper than that. And when we examine the word at a deeper level, all of a sudden my, my anxiety over the word fellowship quickly disappears. Because here's what we learn. Fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means close and mutual association. The word actually means communion. It means partnership with one another. That's what happens when we engage in fellowship. And so you can see it's far more than chewing on a piece of chicken after church. Fellowship involves communion with one another, sharing together with one another, intimate relationships with one another. Three specific verses I want to call your attention to that highlight this idea of fellowship. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We've learned in previous messages that God in eternity past, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, one God who reveals himself in three persons, have been in, in constant and ongoing fellowship. Now we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that those of you who are Christ's followers... Those of you who are Christians have been called into the same kind of fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ that the members of the Trinity have enjoyed from all eternity. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible says, That which we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Does it blow your mind that you are called into fellowship with the triune God? And then, of course, the classic passage that helps us to understand the deeper meaning of fellowship is in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where we're told that the early church devoted themselves to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. 
And here's the interesting thing about fellowship. And that is that God knows that I need it. God knows that you need it. Now, we live in Whatcom County, do we not? Most of you do at least. And there's something about Whatcom County that I have learned. And there's something also about Union County where we transitioned from over five years ago. Union County and Whatcom County share some interesting parallels. And I don't know many people who would admit it in these terms. But when I say it, you're going to know what I'm talking about. It goes something like this. And it usually happens with men. It's not exclusive to men, but it's the men that struggle the most with it. It goes something like this. I don't need no fellowship. Or, I, I don't need no help. I don't need no one else. I'll do it on my own. Does that ring a bell for any of you? And I saw that in Union County in the 11 years that we were there, this, this strong, independent mindset. I was, I was warned of it. I was alerted to it when we moved there that people in Union County, some of which undoubtedly will hear this message, and so I hope I don't get too many angry emails or phone calls, but it's just the facts. I thought when we moved to Whatcom County, we'd be done with that malarkey. It got worse. Shake your head if you know what I'm talking about. Wow. This is bobblehead morning. Yeah. Is there's, a, there's a fierce independence. And when we come to the end of ourselves, gentlemen, we realize this. I need someone else. And I can state it in these terms and make it very simple so that we can all understand so that there's no confusion. Men need friendships. I need friends. You need friends. We need fellowship, both men and women alike. God knows that we need it. We simply need to admit it, do we not? After God created Adam, you'll remember what he said. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make, a, make him a helper fit for him. And so this morning, I want to take a few moments and, and linger at the table in our remaining time and to, to look closer at this matter of fellowship. What does God expect of us? And how can we use this arena? How can we use the table? How can we utilize the table to to spark a new movement of disciple-making. Last week, we looked at the pulpit. Today, we want to move inward and see how disciples can be better cultivated at the table. And so look with me at Romans chapter 12, and would you stand to your feet as we read these two verses. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, these are exciting days in this church family where we see a renovation taking place at the front of the auditorium in the lobby where we see uh, new things happening where we invite new people into uh, the membership at Christ Fellowship, where we make new friends. And at the end of it all, our heart is for discipleship. 
That's our mission. That's our aim, that we would make more disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We learned last week the importance of the pulpit in proclaiming the word of God and hearing the word of God and obeying the word of God. And this week we turn our attention to the table. And I ask that you would, you would help us, that you would be gracious, you would be kind in helping us to see the, the importance of being a people who move inward, of being a people who will readily admit that we need one another moving away from independence, God, and moving towards interdependence. I pray that you'd help us and you'd show us the need to use our spiritual gifts to serve one another, that you would show us all of the benefits that we, uh, that we have at our disposal around the arena of the table. We do it for your honor and your glory. In the Lord Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now, the context of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, flow out of a passage that I considered to read together, but I, I wanted to focus together as a church family on verses 9 and 10 and say, this is what our, our attention will be geared to today. But I also want to alert you to the context of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Would you look at it with me? It begins in chapter 12 of Romans in verse 4. In verse 4. And here's what Paul the Apostle says. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, although we are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion, in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching... The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. These verses now lead us directly to the table. And in our remaining time, I want to encourage you to look with me at five very interesting characteristics of the table. Five characteristics that we'll see emerge at the table. The first is this. We see what I would like to call unpretentious love. Unpretentious love. Verse 9 says, let love be genuine. This is the real McCoy. This is the real deal. This is love that doesn't have strings attached to it. This is the, the genuine, authentic love that God calls us to. In the Phillips paraphrase, I, I love the way J.B. Phillips paraphrases this verse. He says, let us have no imitation Christian love. This isn't fake Christian love. This, this is the real thing. Now, the word love comes from the, the Greek word that many of you know. It's the word agape that means to extend goodwill or benevolence. But genuine is the thing I want to focus on here for a moment. The word genuine from the Greek means love that is sincere, love without hypocrisy. Ouch. Love without hypocrisy. 
Paul the Apostle spoke of this unpretentious love, what he refers to as genuine love, in his letter to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1-7. to But Peter also refers to the same love, and he, he uses the word sincere, which is the same Greek word from the word translated genuine. See if you can hear how it unfolds. He says this in 1 Peter 1.22, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth... For a sincere, brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That is, get rid of the hypocrisy. Begin to show love at the table. And you remember the table is your dinner table. The round table at a Starbucks. The the table at at a Woods coffee shop. A table at a restaurant, it's where we gather for this fellowship, this intimacy. And Paul says, make sure your love is genuine. Get rid of the hypocrisy. I want to show an example and an illustration of what Paul refers to as this unpretentious love. And I asked Caden if he would come and help me. And Caden, I have to tell you, when I asked if you'd come help me, I saw where your eyes went. You were like, you went right to the donut, so come on up. And I, I like that. One of my weaknesses in life, did you know this about me? You know I like Reese's peanut butter cups, right? Mm-hmm. I just read the other day that Reese's peanut butter cup causes Alzheimer's disease. So you know what that means. <laughs> it means I might get Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> so I love Reese's peanut butter cups. So uh, we've been talking, Caden, about unpretentious love. That's genuine love. That's real love. Like it's it's... Can I give this to you and just show you what it's like to, to, to genuinely love you? That'd be okay. W- would you do me a favor and just go share a few of the donuts with, with mom and dad? Then you can come back up here because I want them to participate in this. I think Ken Awesome should. Actually, if you want to share with Ken Awesome, you could do that too because he said earlier he wanted to participate. So, yeah, you want to start with Ken Awesome? Good. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> We'd have you go up to Mr. Holt, but he's he's long ways away. So there you go. Is there anyone else nearby that would love to share? In the, oh, Mr. Sperry? Oh, we got the, the Strikesman family? And if you drop the donuts, Lenny's not going to be very happy. I just have to tell you. All right. Oh, you're gonna. Who are you gonna get one else to? Wow. This illustration is gonna turn into a movement. <laughs> My word. <laughs> I think we have a preacher on our hands. They say at Tim Hortons that that's 50 donut holes. So. Okay, come on back, Caden, and let's uh, let your mom and dad have a couple, and then you can come on back up here on the platform. It's really good of you to share. You start with your mom, ladies first. Okay, all right, wonderful. Oh, and there's one for Mr. V. Come on up here, Caden. And so... What do you, you, your mom and dad and, and a few people that you saw out in the congregation, they got a chance to, what did you think when you opened this, this box? I don't know. You don't know? 
Did you feel anything? Did you, I mean... This is not what you were expecting, was it? Nope. And there's some twigs and there's some rocks. And what did you think you were getting? Uh, donuts. You, why would you think that? Because uh, like it says 50 donuts. But see, that's in French. So you never know what to think about from the French. <laughs> they can't be trusted. But what are we going to do? Well, Ken said earlier that this was an illustration. I'm going to give that to you. And this is an illustration not of unpretentious love. This is an example of pretentious love. You know what pretentious love is? When I was in high school, and I would do this if they still made them, but I don't think they do. My mom used to pack snowballs. How many of you remember snowballs? Hostess snowballs. Oh, mercy. They were wonderful. Coconut chocolate cake with cream and what I used to do when I was in high school I used to take off the coconut on the outside and I'd eat the chocolate cake and then I'd go up to my buddy and say hey would you like you'd like to trade and I'd trade with him and, and I'd get Reese's peanut butter cup right <laughs> and he, he'd go to eat the and he'd realize that it had all been hollowed out was that very loving? that's called pretentious love that's called love that's filled with hypocrisy Right, And so you thought you were going to get a box of donuts, and what did you get? You got a bunch of rocks and sticks and twigs. That's not very loving, is it? So I'm going to make this up to you and show you what, what genuine love is all about. And I'm going to actually give you some M&Ms. All right. Give Caden a hand. All right. The first characteristic of the table is, is an unpretentious love. It's not a love that says, here, let me give you a wonderful gift, and then your friend opens it up and finds rocks and sticks and, and dirt in it. What Paul calls for here in verse 9 is an authentic love. It's a genuine love. That's why he says, let love be genuine. This love is not a, a two-faced love. This love is the real McCoy. It's the real thing. This is the love that, that reaches out when someone has a need, whether it's physical or financial or emotional. This is a love that reaches out and doesn't expect anything in return. There are no strings attached with this kind of love. This is a love that is, is sincere and from the heart. But there's something else that happens at the table. We move from an unpretentious love to a courageous love. Look also at verse 9. Let love be genuine. The second thing that we see here is that we are to abhor what is evil. It's what I, what I like to refer to as courageous love. Evil here is something that is, is bad or morally corrupt or actually mischievous or, or wicked. But it's the word abhor I want to draw your attention to. It means this. It means to hate something or despise something. Here's what Paul wants us to understand. At the, in the context of the table, we are to hate or despise evil. He says it also in 1 Thessalonians 5.22. He says, abstain from every form of evil. That's the same word translated evil. We not only hate or despise evil, he says, stay away from it. So young people, you stay away from people who promote evil. You stay away from, from, from any kind of a venue that would be a promoting of evil purposes. In Ephesians 5.16, Paul says to make good use of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. 
And so true love literally abhors that which is evil. Now, we had some fun with Caden. I want to do something with the, the whole congregation and do a little exercise with you. If you have a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen, would you join along with me? When you, when you hear the word evil, it's kind of like when you go to the psychologist and the psychologist says, what's the first word you think of when I say, let's do that together. When you hear the word evil, what do you think of? Would you write something down? When you hear the word evil, write something, the first thought when you think of, of evil. And then there's a second thing I'd like you to do is I want you to think of a person. When I say evil, think of a person either living or dead. I'll give you just a minute to do that. Write down a person either living or dead. And I'm going to ask a question here in a moment and see how much response we get. How many of you, when I said write down a person living or dead, wrote Hitler? Isn't that interesting? Many, how many of you wrote Stalin or Mussolini or Saddam Hussein? Do I even dare do have you yell out people? Who who are some of the people on your list? Yes. Wow, interesting. Wow, Al Capone. Who else? Ah, okay, good. And so there there are people who who just are 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 evil down to the very core. When we think of types of evil, we think of things like the occult or murder, or rape, or theft, or pornography, or filthy language, or foolish philosophy. The list goes on and on. And true love, you see, confronts evil when you see it affecting the lives of people you know and love. The horrible things that you think of when you think of evil will need to be confronted from time to time. But there is another kind of evil. The kind of evil that we've just discussed Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini and all those other varieties of evil, the garden brand varieties of evil, we understand those very well. But there's another kind of evil that is more prevalent than you might first expect. It is an evil that each of us wrestles with, and it is an evil that needs to be addressed in all of our hearts. And it goes like this. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart or an evil unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. One of the ways that you demonstrate this courageous love is by admonishing and addressing an evil heart of unbelief. John Piper says this about unbelief. He says, unbelief is turning away from God and his son in order to seek satisfaction in other things. That's the essence of an unbelieving heart. And so how do we address an evil heart of unbelief, either in ourselves or in our friends or our family members? Several things come to mind. First, courageous love, courageous love identifies unbelief. And this takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of skill where you begin to see in the people you love, wow, I, I don't think they're being satisfied with all that God is for them in Christ. I, I think I detect an evil heart of unbelief. And so you, you listen for it. You watch for it. You see it played out in daily life. And by the way, don't forget your own heart. Don't forget your own heart because we are all inclined to an evil heart of unbelief. We all have it in us. So we identify unbelief. Secondly, courageous love speaks the truth in love. 
Courageous love speaks the truth in love. I don't know if you're like me, but when you see someone struggling with an evil heart of unbelief, sometimes I would just let it, let it lie. I would just let it rest. Why? We talked a little bit about this in our elders meeting just a few nights ago, that when sin is addressed, more often than not, you get something like this. What about you? Right? Have you experienced that? Where you admonish someone, you address someone, you see that they have an evil heart of unbelief, and you say, brother or sister, I just want to come alongside and make sure you understand this. And what happens? Instead of owning their sin, they, they turn their sin back on you. And where did they get that propensity? They got it from their father, Adam. They got it from their mother, Eve, who did the very same thing in the garden. And so courageous love makes a commitment to speak the truth in love. And courageous love refuses to ignore unbelief. Courageous love refuses to ignore unbelief. In the three churches that I have had a chance to serve in a pastoral role at, Jareen and I have seen this this very interesting trend in all of the churches, including Christ Fellowship. And it goes something like this. You see something, you see an evil heart of unbelief in someone, and the response is this. Oh, that's, that's, just, that's just you fill in the blank. I don't want to say someone's name and think, oh, he's talking about me. That's just so-and-so. You say, well, actually, it seems like this woman, this man is being very selfish. Oh, no, no, that's, that's just them. It seems like this person has a, a high degree of pride. Like they're a know-it-all. They're, they're splitting the church. Oh, that's just how they are. And the, the propensity in my heart, like I've already admitted, is to just let it slide. What I'm learning as I grow and as I get more strong in the Christian faith is you can't let it slide. Is we can no longer say, oh, that's just how this person is. Rather, it must be addressed. And I believe it's best addressed at the table. Proverbs 27, 5 says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Finally, courageous love not only refuses to ignore unbelief, but courageous love, 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, it never gives up. It never gives up. Do you have someone in your life where they are struggling with an evil heart of unbelief? I do. And you just feel like throwing in the towel. And you just say, I just abandoned that person. That is so easy to do, just to walk away. But true love never gives up. Is it a son? Is it a daughter? Is it a friend? Is it an uncle? Is it a grandpa? Is it a grandma? Is it a spouse? True love never gives up. There's a third thing that happens at the table, and it also surfaces in verse 9. And I need to say at this point, isn't the Word of God something? Here we are, more than halfway into the sermon, and we're still in verse 9 trying to figure this out. And Paul says this, he says, hold fast to what is good. It's what I like to refer to as steadfast love. That's what occurs at the table. Steadfast love. That word hold fast means to, to cling to. It means to, to stick to. Dreen and I recently had a, a, a little piece of wood, the entryway to one of the bathrooms. It, it came up. And uh, 
if you know anything about me, you know that I'm the last person you want fixing something. And so my, my wife is so gracious, and she's more gifted than I am. And so she sent me to the store, and I got the materials, and I got the fancy glue and all this fancy schmancy stuff, right? And I come back, and she did the work, right? I don't want to mess with it. And so she put the glue on the strip, and she laid it down, and she said, I need some big books. To, I can get big books, right? So I got some big books, and we put it on the piece of wood. And guess what? It's there. It's stuck. It's, it's clinging to. And this is what Paul says. Cling to that which is good. Hold fast to that which is good. Do not, as he says in Romans 12, 21, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans fourteen sixteen. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Or consider Isaiah five twenty. I think of America when I read this verse. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. A critical mark we discover at the table is a group of Christ followers who are committed to steadfast love. That is, they hold fast, they, they cling to that which is good. What's it look like? They celebrate the good. When something good happens, they celebrate it. They, they commend the good. They rejoice in what is good. They have a party when something good happens. But there's a fourth quality here that emerges in verse 10. And Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. I like to call this tender love. Love one another with brotherly affection. It means to love one another deeply. It means to love one another like, like brothers, like fellow believers. And so we, we show tender love when someone goes ill. We show tender love when someone is discouraged. We show tender love by bringing meals to people who are struggling with illness or physical problems. And there are a multitude of ways we could take the rest of our time that we could talk about how to demonstrate tender love here in the body of Christ. Our challenge is to figure out how we can best reach out with the time and the resources and the talents that God has given us. There's a final quality that emerges here in verse 10. And Paul says it this way, and I, I like it a great deal. He says to outdo one another in showing honor. I like to refer to this as extravagant love. He says, outdo in showing honor. It means to do something with eagerness. In this case, to show honor to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to pay someone honor or value. My encouragement to you is this. Get good at showing extravagant love. Go the extra mile. Do something nice. Spend more than you would normally spend. If you're a cheapskate, stop being a cheapskate. Spend more than you would normally spend. Spend more time than you would spend with someone that you love. Shower someone with extravagant love to the glory of God. I didn't do that very well with Caden, didn't, did I? I gave him a bunch of rocks and sticks and, and uh, dirt. I gave him one thing, an M&M's. I want to give you some, some of those. I give some M&M's, some more of those. Your mom and dad are getting nervous. Get you a Snickers bar. And there you go. All right. Now, that, that's just a, just, Caden, that's just a little teensy, teensy example of what it means to show 
extravagant love. And when you show extravagant love, I should tell you from my perspective, it's really fun seeing Caden squirm and, you know, you got a sucker in your mouth. Where'd you get that? Wow. But it's, it's fun to show extravagant love. Some of you have learned how fun it is to show extravagant love. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, It is for your sake so that grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I believe as we show extravagant love horizontally to people that we are loving, great glory goes to our God the God of the Bible. Five characteristics of the table. Unpretentious love, courageous love, steadfast love, tender love, extravagant love. And I need to ask this question. What are the stumbling blocks that get in the way of these kinds of loving actions? And the the two stumbling blocks that surfaced immediately in my mind, in fact, I, I had to discipline myself not to go any further. The two I want to focus on are, are two serious problems with every person. The first I've already addressed, and that is a fierce independence. A fierce independence. And the second is selfishness. You combine fierce independence and selfishness, what you have is a church family who never shows love to one another. There's never any extravagant love. There's never any tender love. There's never any steadfast love. Why? Because it's all about me. It's about me, me, me. And so I want to leave you with three suggestions this morning for this inward ministry that can occur, that can occur at your table. And they're very simple points of application. Probably almost too basic. And the first is this. I want to encourage you to, to open the doors of your home to open the doors of your home, to simply invite people into your home, whether it's for a dinner, whether it's for dessert, whether it's to watch a ball game, whether it's to come together just to hang out, whether it's to have a barbecue, just open the doors of your home. I remember I talked to a group of elders six or seven years ago, and I was getting to know this group of men, and, and uh, it became very apparent to me that, that none of the men had been to one another's homes. And I found that very strange. I found that very weird that elders in a church family had not even been to one or two homes in their brother's church that they served in. So open the doors of your home. Secondly, and probably more difficult, opening the doors of your home, that's easy. All it does is involve opening the door. Second, though, is open the doors of your heart. Open the doors of your heart. Share with people and allow them to share with you. Listen, learn, and see how you might minister to them at the table. And not to be too hard on the gentleman once again, but this is something that comes more, more of, is more of a challenge for men. Women are so good at this. They share their heart. They're open. They're transparent. Men, we have a lot to learn from our women. And from our wives. And so we make a commitment to opening the doors of our heart. Finally, open, your, open the doors of your life to the purposes of God by merely inviting someone to the table. And as you open the doors of your home and open the doors of your heart, you will see new opportunities for ministry. You will learn things about people that you never learned before. You will find that people are profoundly lonely. You will find that people are profoundly discouraged. You will find that people are struggling financially. You will find that just people need a friend. You will find that people have been watching ball games all by themselves. 
Why? Probably because they're fiercely independent. And you will learn that when you come together and, and love one another, you'll find that there's a, a, a gospel camaraderie that takes place. And that's how I want to end this morning, by saying that none of this can take place without the gospel. You see, we have grown accustomed in the New Testament church to, to lay a series of imperatives before the people of God, to lay a, a whole host of commands before the people of God. And almost through the back door, we challenge people to do it on their own. And I hope at Christ Fellowship you understand you can't do any of these things on your own. You would have no desire on your own is you need the gospel to fuel this genuine love that takes place at the table. When you will confess that, that Jesus, the God-man, came to, to live the life that you could never live and to die a, a death, a grueling death on the cross that each of us deserve to die, you will understand as you focus on the power of the resurrection that he has come, he has defeated sin, he has canceled the power and the, and the, and the penalty of sin in each of our lives if you're a follower of Jesus. And it is that gospel that will propel you into the future. It is that gospel that will enable you to love people. It is that gospel that will get you off the chair to move forward in love to one another. And I believe that's when great things begin to happen in the body of Christ. As small groups of people begin to cluster, small groups of people begin to gather. And here's the really great thing in closing. It's already happening. My definition of ministry, my definition of ministry is good stuff that happens in the church that doesn't make the bulletin. It's not that the stuff that makes the bulletin isn't good. It's not that women's Bible study isn't good. It's not that Iron Man isn't good. It's not that Veritas isn't good. But it's those things, and some of you know what I'm talking about. It's the, the meetings at the coffee shop. It's the small group in the home. It's the group of women that get together to sew on Mondays. Those things are happening, and a lot of those things most of us don't know about. I love it. That's exciting. That's when you see discipleship beginning to take root in the life of a local church. Now, here's our challenge. As we continue to go inward, we must not stay inward. We must also go outward, and that will be our focus next week. As, as we grow to love one another more and more, it gets very tempting to say, I like these guys I'm hanging out with now. And someone else comes, it's hard to invite that person into that, that group or that clique, if you will. And we must never be a church family like that. We must never be a church that is a, is, a, is a family of cliques. We need to always be seeing how we can press out. And that will be the focus of our discussion next week as we look at what it means to reach the community with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, uh, it is you that have shown extravagant love to us. It is you who have been tender with us. It is you who has expressed genuine love to us. All these things that we have looked at this morning at the table, uh, you have modeled it to us first and most notably through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would help us as a church family to be uh, a church family who loves the table a church family who loves to open the doors of our homes and the doors of our hearts, that we would open our, the doors of our hearts to your purposes so that more disciples would be developed, the more disciples would grow, that they would be encouraged, that they'd be nurtured in the Christian faith. And so, God, we'd be so kind to allow this ministry to 
both continue and increase here at Christ Fellowship so that you would be glorified, so that the gospel would continue to be uh, proclaimed with great power at the table. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.